0: I'm guessing you may have noticed that we are in the midst of a somewhat lively political season. Hard to miss it. It's constantly being proclaimed to us in so many places. As I've been following along with the campaign of the various contenders, listening to their disparate points of view and arguments on a variety of topics, I've been struck by their remarkable unity on one particular theme. Each and every candidate is powerfully conscious of all that's going to Hades these days. Uh, Each and every one of them is deeply aware, as maybe many of us are, of all of the problems, the missing pieces, the messed up situations in our world, all of the woeful lacks in people, and even sometimes in the very people who lead us or are vying to lead us, and if you let all of this in, all of the negativity, all of the, 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 the messiness of this time, if you really let it in, it can depress you or drive you to despair. Which is one of the reasons why I think it's always helpful to hold on to something of an historical perspective about life. And to not judge things simply from the viewport of today but to remember and to learn from the witness of those who have gone before us in life's journey. Uh, There have been people who have faced much worse in our era and across our world, and here, here even in this country, and there are people whose very response to the difficulty of the times that they were in was an exercise of character and of commitment that made all of the difference in the end. It may not have turned the tide immediately, but ultimately it made a profound difference to the course of the future. And I suspect that is one of the reasons, this focus on character and commitment, one of the reasons why I especially appreciated the story that gets told in the book and now the movie drama called The Boys in the Boat. Some of you may be familiar with it. The story begins in 1933. It is amidst the trouble and the turbulence of the Great Depression. One quarter of all Americans were out of work. Let's just just take that in. A quarter of all Americans, no job, no income, that they can rely on from their own efforts. Literally, millions of people are homeless, Uh, people of all ages. Uh, We think we have a homelessness problem today, we do. But wow, millions and millions of people homeless during the Great Depression, with little of the social uh, safety nets that we take advantage of or for granted today. It was a time of of fear, a time of tremendous scarcity, when it would have been so easy for people to grow hopeless and, and to grow selfish and to turn on one another, and some people certainly did, but not everyone. Once again, it became a test of character and a commitment. And in the midst of all of that, this little story told in this movie and book starts to turn. Many people could not afford food, much less a college education in those days. But at the University of Washington in Seattle, there had arisen a plan to try and help some of the students with this problem. The university was offering struggling students a way to help them cover both meals and tuition costs. Uh, They would provide a much coveted and very hard to find part-time campus job to students who could qualify for the university's much beloved rowing team. It was undersubscribed at the time. The university was creating an incentive for people to come out and to compete in this program. And so on Monday, the 9th of October, 1933, a record 175 would-be rowers showed up to try out for the crew team. They did it in hopes of gaining one of only 10 spots. Eight rowers, one coxswain, one reserved person, only 10 spots. Now, the people who came out that particular day were a motley crew, to be sure. They were tall, they were thin, they were short, they were stout, they came from cities and small towns and from farms. They came from all over the United States. Some of them were relatively affluent by the measure of that day. A lot of them were very poor. Very, very poor. Most of them had never been in a rowing shell. In fact, most of them had never even seen a rowing shell, which, by the way, is the term that is used for the long, thin-hulled and shell, thin-hulled boats that characterize the sport of rowing. But what united this great crowd was a sliver of hope. A little sliver of hope. Maybe there was something for them here. Maybe there was something that could help them fill their stomachs and maybe their souls in a time of deep need. And for this, they were willing to undergo the severe testing, the hours-long training. In fact, in the sport of rowing, you train 900 hours to a single hour of competition. 900 to 1 is the ratio of training to competition. And they were willing to undergo This, the world's most demanding, enduring, endurance sport so that it might change their future in some way. This is the hope of those who come on October the 9th, 1933. The Bible Bible describes a moment like this in the sixth chapter of John's Gospel. And I welcome you to turn up in your Bibles or open in your... Handheld, or whatever you do to follow along in God's word, and to be reading with me John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. Jesus crossed, presumably in a boat, to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, John tells us, and a great crowd of people followed him. Jesus is one of the boys in the boat. Jesus is in the boat, he's crossing over to the far side, and a huge crowd of people are following him. Why, we may wonder, are so many people following Jesus? Why are they doing this? Why did they too get in boats? Or make the long, arduous, difficult journey around the perimeter of the Sea of Galilee to follow to the place where Jesus was going to land? Why were they working so hard to keep up with Jesus? The Gospel writer says, I quote, because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. The signs, the pointers to the reality that he might be someone they'd been waiting for. That he might just possibly be the long-awaited Messiah, the one who had the power and capacity to reverse a lot of the troubles of their time. They had seen the signs of his healing power and they were following after him. He had the power to make things better. Now let me pause here and make an observation that the crowd that came to Jesus that day came to him because they were looking for something they did not have. In every single season, human beings are looking for things they don't have, for something that will make life better. Nobody leaves behind their home or their work and then follows after some mysterious teacher if they have it all together already. A lot of people, including many of us, come to Jesus because... We know we do not have it all together. People who think that they have it all together don't usually tend to be all that interested in Jesus. Maybe in a passing way, perhaps, but not in a passionate way. Some of the religious people of Christ's time did feel they had it pretty much all together, which is why their reaction to Jesus is significantly different than the reaction of common people. In terms that I described last week in my message then, these people felt that their lives were filled with enough love and good deeds. Enough love and good deeds. They felt pretty satisfied with the condition of their lives. Their stomachs and their souls were full. They were physically and morally healthy, or so they believed. And so they were more than slightly appalled when Jesus A rabbi, a religious guy like them, at least somewhat like them, was hanging around with needy people who was even eating, the scripture says, with such a motley crew of sinners. Sinners meaning people that do not uh, have lives that are marked by love and good deeds like we Pharisees. They were scandalized by the company that Jesus kept, all these needy people. But Jesus said to them, in effect, that he'd come for people who were needy, that he'd come for the sick, he said, people who knew they did not have it all together. Amy and I moved to Chicagoland um, 27 years ago this week. And and one of the things that, that we very quickly picked up and have come to most admire and love about this church is that it doesn't have many Pharisees in it. It has a lot more people like the ones who pursued Jesus, like the people on that dock at the University of Washington who showed up at the boathouse in 1933 with real needs. It's important to note that many of us have Lots more going for us than those people who were living through the Great Depression or even those people that flocked to Jesus on that particular day. By virtue of living here in America, in this era of health care, in this period of technology, at a time when despite all that still needs fixing, and we got a lot for sure, so many things do work, which is why people are wanting to come here so many things do work, we are among the blessed. We are among the blessed. But like those who came to the boathouse or who followed after Jesus on this particular day, those people who came to rendezvous with Jesus' boat, many of us still know we don't have it all together, do we? Think about the places in your life where you know it's still not all together. Some of us would like to have a much clearer sense of our identity, our belonging, or our purpose as we move through life. And as we were reminded a couple of weeks ago by one of our guest preachers, that longing to get clearer on identity, belonging, and purpose is like the number one driving force for our young people. And our church is made up of many, many young people, and some of us still young at heart in these ways, longing for greater clarity about our identity, our purpose, our belonging. Some of us would like to experience a much deeper level of friendship than we currently have. We've got so many acquaintances, we've got lots of fly-by friends, but, but so few that know us so deeply, there's nothing we could reveal about ourselves, our fears, our hopes, our failures, that they would not somehow stand with and hold us in the midst of, and we wouldn't be afraid to tell them. Some of us long for that kind of deep friendship. Some of us would like to develop a wisdom or a character, and it takes both, I think, to make our marriages more than they are, to change the quality of our parenting, to make it more consistent, better than it is right now. Some of us would like to find a a peace that makes us less anxious. We feel like we're going through so much of our life just on edge, worried, concerned, if not consciously, then it's just always simmering there underneath. It's part of why we toss and turn in the night and struggle. Some of us are looking for a power that can enable us to break free finally from that addiction that we know is damaging our lives and our relationships. Some of us are looking for the promise that our past failures, the ones we're so ashamed of, we don't even know how to talk about it sometimes, that these things do not have the final word about us. We are looking for a pathway to to doing something truly life-changing, some of us, with all of our success. Something that really gives meaning to our having been here, more meaning than our home, our car, our vacations. Some of us know we don't have that altogether either. In other words, some of us know that we are sinners, still broken people, incomplete people, and that Christ is a savior. And if if you only need to know two things in life, Those are two good things to know. I'm a sinner. Christ is a savior. And so we come. We come to the dock. We come to meet the man in the boat. We come to find hope for the future. I've always been fascinated by what happens next in the story in John chapter six. Christ has crossed the Sea of Galilee to the far shore. He gets out of the boat, we must presume, at the dock or the, 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 in the sand, I don't know. He sees the crowd of people who are there who have come following after him, or he sees the fleet of, of, of dinghies and boats behind him coming after him. And we read this, then Jesus went up on a mountainside. And I know this part of Galilee and some of you have seen it. It's not a mountain in the full sense of, you know, snow-capped peaks. It's a, it's a considerable hill. It's a grassy hill. And Jesus goes up on the mountainside and we're told he sits down with his disciples. And that word disciple is an important one. It just simply means he sat down with his learners. He sat down with those who were out trying to imitate him. He sat down with his students. Jesus loves spending time with people eager to learn of him. Like you are eager to learn of him. He loves that. And, And then we read this. The Jewish Passover festival was near. I want to invite you to keep that detail in mind. It's a significant one and we're going to return to it. When Jesus looked up, So he's got his immediate circle of disciples around him and he looks up beyond the horizon of that little circle. He saw a great crowd coming toward him. He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now I love this question because dollars to donuts Philip and Jesus' other disciples are aware that they have a burgeoning problem here. A significant problem here. A lot more people have shown up at the boathouse for tryouts than was anticipated. A whole lot more people have shown up and it's obvious to the disciples that there's no way we can accommodate all of these people. Uh, I mean, we're not even sure how we're going to Going to keep the crowd under control. He's worrying about them eating. Jesus is worrying about that. It must have scandalized the disciples, upset the disciples. And, and, And Jesus sees Philip turning toward him with this look of anxiety in his eyes, as if to say, Jesus, what are you going to do about this? And Jesus replies, what are we going to do about this? How are we going to address the need? The next verse tells us that Jesus asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Some people read that as if Jesus were saying, ah, Philip, I was just kidding. You you just sit back. I, I got this. I got this. The empty stomachs, the stuck spiritual life, the broken marriage, the shaky parenting, the addiction, all that other stuff that people come to me for, I've got it covered. You just chill, you just sit back, you just relax. I'm going to snap my fingers and fix it. Some people read that text and think, oh, that's what Jesus is saying when he's just testing Philip to see how much Philip believed in him and his power, in Jesus and his power. But this is not what Jesus is doing at all. The test, Philip, isn't to find out if you trust me to address the issue. It's whether you are ready to join me in the work of redemption Philip's response is really illuminating here. It it reveals what I would call the scarcity mindset. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. do you love the frankness of the disciples? I mean, just honest people like you and, and me. What Philip is saying, Jesus, there's not even close to enough money to solve the problem. And I mean, even if we had the cash, there's not a store anywhere near around here that I can see where we could buy what we need to even make a start on this problem. There's not even a 7-Eleven, less a jewel, Jesus. I mean, look around. We're in nowheresville. There's always... Always a lot of good reasons why something good can't be done. And plenty of people to point it out as the next verse makes clear. Another one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many. Can you hear the dejection in Andrew's question? When you live with a sense of scarcity, it leads to such sadness. I could do a little something. But how far would that go? Drop in the bucket. Hardly make a dent. Scarcity that leads to sadness. Some of you may be living right now with something of that. Maybe you are. You contemplate the gap between the way things are and the way you wish they could be you think, I just don't have enough energy. I just don't have enough time. I just don't have enough wisdom. I just don't have enough talent, enough confidence, enough partners to fill that gap, to turn things around, to reach that goal. And I would say to you, if that's what you're feeling, fair enough, fair enough because from your present vantage point, that's probably realistic. But do not let your humility overcome your availability. Do not let your humility stop you from being available to what God might yet do. Don't let your awareness of what you don't have stop you from using what you do have. Show up at the boathouse. Bring who you are and what you have to Jesus' boat. You see, there is another mindset that we could choose to adopt when we're facing trouble. And we're facing a lot of it, personally, nationally, societally. There's this different mindset we can choose to adopt. It's counterintuitive. It's, it's not being modeled lots of places these days. We can choose to be kind of like the unnamed boy in the story. This amazing kid in the story. Have you ever thought about this kid? How is it that Andrew even knew that amidst this big, hungry crowd, there was a boy who had five little bread rolls and a couple of sardines. I mean, it's a big, big group of people. How is this kid even noticed in that crowd? I'm going to go with Occam's razor on this one. That's the theory that the, the simplest explanation is probably the answer. I think the boy raised his hand. I think he volunteered himself. I think he saw the disciples looking desperate and talking among themselves over this terrible, unsolvable food situation. And kids have this way of noticing when adults are under stress. And it brings up in kids a desire to try and help with that stress. And so I think the kid pulled out the lunch that he'd been carrying in his cloak and people did that. They had pockets in these things. Especially when they were going someplace, they would bring stuff. And he pulled it out and he he held it out and he said, here, let Jesus use these. I don't know about this big problem, but this is what I have. This is what I'll give. I think this is the shift that God wants us to make in a lot of life situations. I think that Jesus calls us, and this is a big theme of his teaching, to move from a a mindset of scarcity and sadness to a mindset of sufficiency and surrender. We surrender what we have, even though it's not enough, into the one whose grace is sufficient for all needs. Instead of being locked into a fearfulness about all the scarcity. When our eyes are focused on Jesus, when we keep him number one, we we will worry a lot less about what we don't have and trust more in what he might do with what we put in his hands. This is what made David able to go up against Goliath. It wasn't he went out there and said, I'm feeling particularly strong today. No, this guy was a giant. He had slaughtered. Israel. But when David looked in that direction towards the big giant, what he saw was God standing behind him and he said, so I got some stones and and God's calling me to this battle. I guess it's going to be enough. I think most of us know what happens next in this story. It's one of the most famous tales of the entire New Testament. Jesus has everybody sit down on the grass and the Bible says that there were 5,000 men there, which means that the crowd was tons bigger than that because not just guys, those were just the men. The men often came with women and with children. And there was obviously this boy suggestive of that larger crowd than just men. And Jesus then took the loaves gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated at the country table. Should sound like another story we've heard because it is pointing towards a story that hasn't yet happened. And and he did the same with the fish. And when they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. What? A couple of buns and two sardines and thousands of people and there's stuff left over? Well, yeah, there's stuff left over. They gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. This miracle, this amazing miracle of the loaves and the fishes has fascinated people for generations it's been a puzzle. What happened here? Did Jesus supernaturally multiply what was put in his hands? Well, of course he could. He made a universe with the sound of his voice. <laughs> yes, he could do this. Did the, did the crowd see the example of the boy who, who gave what he had, gave up his lunch for other people and then just reach into their cloaks and start pulling out what they also had that they'd been hoarding? That little throwaway comment we read earlier in the story about the fact that the Passover festival was near is intriguing because we know that when pilgrims came to Jerusalem for the Passover, and they came, you know, a million sometimes, made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover, they packed food with them. There were no Wendy's, no Chipotle's along the road. And so they brought, sometimes, more than the usual amount of food with them. Either way, whether it was the miracle of God's generosity or the miracle of human beings inspired to be more generous than they had been before, the story boils down to a single word and the single word is surrender. moving from scarcity to surrender. And it's the story of what God can do when we do that. Because even if it was just Jesus doing a miracle, they had to keep passing the bread and giving it to others for the miracle to continue. One year ago, Many of you decided to move past a scarcity mindset towards a sufficiency and surrender mindset. You stopped focusing, uh, as perhaps you had. I know I, I go there too. Uh, we focus on what we don't have. Um, and we, we all thought hard about what we did have, what we do have, and we made the bold decision to reach into our cloak and, and, and to take it out and to, and to put it into the hands of Jesus. Um, and, and you and I, many of us, we surrendered what we could have kept. We trusted that we would be provided for even as we were generous towards other. I want to invite you to look at the hillside and to look at what has happened in the past year. A new preschool is in the process of being reborn. We're renovating the facilities right now, and there will be all these kids here come fall and all of their parents and, and a ripple effect of influence in the world around us because of this. A disability ministry has been launched. Is mustering now volunteer teams, and families are coming to this church because they can find help here that they couldn't find elsewhere. Thousands of individuals and families have been lifted. There are 400 more people here on the hillside every week with us than there were last year at this time. I hope you aren't sad when you consider this. I bet you're glad that you surrendered to make this possible. And so as I bring us to a close today, let me just take you back to the story from 1933 with which we began this morning. Both Tracy Bianchi, who's preaching across the way in our auditorium today, both of us have particular resonance with the story of the boys in the boat because both of us were on rowing teams. She was at Wisconsin, I was at Yale, both of us, found that experience to be one of the defining ones of our lives. And, and, and the story in that book and in the movie made of that book of what can happen when very ordinary people surrender themselves to an extraordinary purpose bigger than them is something that stirs you when you really are on the inside of that, or even those of you who've read it or watched it, you get this, the disciple Andrew's question to Jesus, how far will they go, might well have been asked of that ragtag group who showed up at the dock in Washington on October 9th, 1933. The answer to that question, how far will they go, was all the way to the 1936 Olympics. All the way to the gold medal all the way to a victory for freedom and faith in the face of Hitler's burgeoning tyranny. An amazing story of people who went so much further in their impact than they even dared to imagine when they first made the decision to surrender. As Tracy and I can tell you, being on a rowing crew is the second most powerful experience of togetherness that either of us have known. There comes a moment in a boathouse when a team lines up on either side of the shell, the great long boat, and the coxswain, which is the person who drives the boat and coaches the boat from within, barks out these words hands on, hands on. And all of the oarsmen on either side of the boat reach out and put their hands on the gunnels of the boat. And then the coxswain says, all together now, lift. And everyone lifts. And the lift is so much lighter than it should be on this huge craft because all hands are on. And the oarsmen or the oarswomen raise this huge craft from its storage rack. They walk it out of the boathouse, and they set it down gently upon the water. And then there comes, shortly, a short while later, another moment of togetherness that neither Tracy nor I will ever forget. I've spoken of it here once before, many years ago. When you're out on the water in the midst of a great race, you start to forget all of the thoughts that you had before the race that you don't have enough, that you might not have brought enough to serve the mission that that took you there. You begin to feel the sufficiency of your training, and of all of the hearts of these other people who are around you in the boat and what they have brought to this particular moment, and you push the thought of the pain, and it is serious pain, and you push the thought of the fatigue, and that too is great. The longer you go, you push it back in your mind and you start to surrender to the sublime goodness of what is happening now in that boat. Because with each sweep of these very long oars, you know, four on each side, with each explosion of thrust from the muscled legs in that boat, driving the oar blades through the water and out again and through the water and out again, every person in the boat, all eight of them and the coxswain, become one and every heart and every hand and every head moves increasingly more and more together until their synchronization of purpose becomes near perfect. And and this synchronization is such that ultimately it actually lifts This huge craft out of the water until it begins to hydroplane and it flies forward at a breathtaking speed that is simply rapturous. That's what the boys in the boat experienced. That's something of what the first disciples experienced. That's what Jesus invites you and me to experience with one another, with Him, as we bring the sufficiency of what we have and we surrender it to Him and ask Him to use it for His good purposes. If you want to experience a real lift in your life, if you want to lift others in ways that you've never been able to lift them before, then then keep doing that with your generosity. Make the choice to open your cloak, to get into the boat, to be part of the massive movement of grace that has been sweeping through this crowd of more than 5,000 for the last year help us cross the finish line with more resources for feeding and blessing others than we can even contain in 12 baskets. In the name of Jesus, I bid you, Christ Church, hands on. Hands on. All together now. Lift. Please pray with me. Lord, I can imagine Philip and Andrew in heaven. I can see their grins as they look upon this church, seeing your power at work in our hearts, smiling as they say, how far will they go? Let it be far, let it be fast, let it be for your glory and the blessing of people. In the name of Jesus we pray and all of God's people said, Amen.
1: My name is Caitlin McCarthy and I came to Christ Church, I'd say six, seven years ago when I was in high school one time, but then I went away to college and now I'm back home. I was looking for somewhere to find a church home. So that kind of led me to go into Christ Church at five. And I really was going through a stage in my life where I was just open to anything and was really just looking for that spiritual connection. And growing my relationship with God had become more of a focal point in my life. And I thought, why not learn more about what this church has to offer and if there's groups that I could be a part of. And I've joined the 20s group and I've made some great friends who are my age who are going through these similar stages of life. and. We've just had a ton of fun together from, you know, Friday nights just hanging out as 20s girls and going to Bible study a lot of the weeks and just growing relationships with the Lord and just growing relationships with each other. And about three weeks later, they talked about go trips. And when the opportunity was given to me to go to Malawi and build relationships with women on the other side of the world and see how they live every single day, I said, it's a no-brainer, let's go. I brought my sister along with me, but we both looked at each other when we got there and we were like, what did we do? We know we're here for a reason, but this is scary. Being on the other side of the world from our family in a country that we don't speak the language and we have no idea what we're about to embark on. But I felt God the most the next morning on Sunday at church. This is my journal and I had like first two days of entries and I said, Lord, I can feel your presence. We came on a paper Sunday, and paper Sunday in Malawi means that they're all gonna gather and it's their day to give. And they brought the big gifting basket and people took turns one by one and they danced with their money. And they were singing and laughing and just celebrating the idea of giving. And to then go home that night and realize that a lot of these people don't even have the money to feed their families, they don't even have the money to send their kids to pay for their school fees, but they're giving and happily giving to their church so that they can put a roof on their church. We had the opportunity to witness that generous giving. That was so special. I felt God in that moment, in that day, so much with the giving, with the generosity, with the kindness of the Malawians. I always want to give back in some sort of way to help make this world a better place. To be able to have the opportunity to give back is one of the biggest blessings that the Lord has given me. The way I give, I got to see the impact abroad and where those dollars are going. It makes me want to give more. It makes every dollar feel worth it. When you have those moments of vanity and say, well, you know, this month I might not want to give, but you stop yourself because you're like, no, People need it. Malawians need it. The folks in Kenya, they need it. The folks in Mexico, they need it. Folks in the inner city of Chicago, they need it. There's a lot of people in this world, there's a lot of ways to give, but giving through a lift commitment and giving to Christchurch, you know your dollars are going to a wonderful cause.